This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman. Doris D. Red China. Johnny Ree. South Pacific. South Pacific. South Pacific. Hello again and welcome to episode five of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and ability to make global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce, this is Katie Puckrick, and Katie, as always, we are ready to go where no other podcast goes, because no other podcast has Billy. And no other podcast cares the way we care, Tom. Exactly. Right, what's our topic today, Katie? Topic today is South Pacific. The musical, the movie, the magic, the madness, it's all happening. Now, I have to say that before I uh, encountered this topic in this Billy Joel-esque world that we are currently inhabiting, I had never seen South Pacific in any way, shape or form. What was your, did you have any sort of uh, association with it? What I have found, Katie, is that in my mind I had confused it with From Here to Eternity, starring Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr. Because there's foamy surf and there's... Foamy, sexy surf. And sexy, foamy, shaven men's chests. Exactly. No hair on men's chest in the mid-century. I have subsequently watched some clips from the right film and I've listened to the musical and I then realised that I knew the song Happy Talk because Captain Sensible had a number one with it when I was about seven and I never knew that was from South Pacific. Oh, well, you know, what if The Damned had done, reenacted the entire musical? That would, that would have been something. A punk rock South Pacific. That's a great shout. The other thing I've noticed, Katie... And if you found this when you watched the film version last night, it's possibly the campest thing I have ever seen. So camp. So Amazingly camp. camp. So many men in midriff, like little <laughs> bare midriffs with their little like Madonna tops. These are guys with the uh, uh, kind of hip hugger jeans, which some of them, I don't think they're wearing undergarments. Oh my ju- goodness. Judging from the shapes I was seeing <laughs> in the trouser region. And then, um, yeah, some of the men are wearing like sexy uh, shell jewelry around their neck, necklaces and things. And I guess it was just trying to demonstrate that the CBs were being bohemian, but I think it looked like they were a little light in their loafers. (laughs) If Jean-Paul Gaultier were to make a 1950s musical, I think he probably would have made South Pacific. I think Jean-Paul Gaultier saw South Pacific and thought, that is my career. I'm doing that (laughs) now forever. Um, So who's our guest, Katie? Oh, yeah, that. I could sit here and jawbone all day long, but we actually have an expert, so we don't have to keep making things up and doing a lot of misdirection. We are now joined by a real expert in South Pacific. Her name is Dr. Kara Rodway. She is the chair of the British Association for American Studies and the deputy head of the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British Library. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so excited that we've cut straight to the chase and we've got to the male nudity already. Well, I <laughs> I was astonished, Cara, because I was watching it last night and the men never put their clothes on. Like the women improbably always have, you know, lots of clothes on. 
uh, and because, you know, it's improbable because it's in the middle of the South Pacific. It's a little hot there. But the men, my goodness, they are just getting their baps out left, right and center. <laughs> it was considered quite racy at the time. Um, you know, when the stage show was made in the late 40s, you know, they the, the director decided particularly um, Lieutenant Cable, who's the good looking kind of young hero who has the uh, interracial romance that, you know, the way that they could signify that they had had this. His sexy encounter was that he could take his, you know, the, the stage would go dark and then he would take his shirt off. And the poor actor who was originally cast was told that he had to lose a load of weight if he was going to uh, uh. going to be semi-naked. So, you know, the body fascism was was, was there already. It was up and, and up and happening. So presumably the lights would come back up and then yeah. you would just see this very insinuating setup with the man with no shirt on. Exactly. And that was, like that, that, was, that was what you were left to work with. But you're right. It is a very camp show. And I think... It's really interesting that that one of the reasons it was successful was that it was it was perceived as very straight. Um, and I think it's funny how our sort of our interpretation of it has has changed over time. And you know, it's playing with gender already. You know, there's the the, the song um, Honey Bun, which is the this sort of vaudeville skit that all the the marines perform and you have um luther billis who's the guy wearing the jewelry yes dressed up as a as a woman with kind of coconut shell bra and a grass skirt <laughs> it's one of my favorite bits so it is already playing with this stuff but it was it was written as very straight there's a reason there's no dance numbers in the show which was because the creatives decided that you know you needed to make sure that it you know it was realistic you know it, it was sort of ripped from the headlines and it you know it just wouldn't be the done thing to have a load of you know these manly men suddenly pirouette but it is it's funny that it was you know it was definitely this very sort of straight treatment but um that that's certainly been appropriated over the years and the kind of yeah that the queer readings have definitely are definitely there it seems right to our eyes Katie's it seems obviously old fashioned and quite straight laced but was it really revolutionary at the time? I found a review from a critic of the stage show who said it boasts no ballets and no hot hoofing, which makes me think that everything before was like ballet and hot hoofing. So there's a couple of interesting things there. So the Rodgers and Hammerstein, who are the, you know, the, the people who write the show, are very famous for Oklahoma, which is written during the war, 1943, and it really revolutionises the way musical theatre works. It has what you call it, it's an integrated show. So it has character, it has music and it has dance. And all of those serve to forward the plot and the sort of emotional journeys of the characters. Because what you'd had before then, so sort of in the, in the 30s, you know, if you think of like um, Astaire and Rogers, you know, it's much more kind of there's a song and there's a dance number and then there's some plot and they don't necessarily all sort of work together in the same way. Yeah, and also the dance numbers are usually just spectacle. They're they're, exactly. they're almost like a palate cleanser. They don't advance the plot and it is more just like a bunch, you know, 20 hundred legs kicking yeah. in the same direction at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and Busby Barkley is very famous, you know, for that as a sort of as the, his visual medium in the 30s. It's very, you know, it's very lavish, it's very beautiful, it's very escapist, but it doesn't necessarily move the move the plot on. And so what Rodgers and Hammerstein did with, with Oklahoma and then with Carousel was seen as, as very sort of revolutionary. So I think it's quite interesting that they deliberately then broke with that model for this material. They realised that if they wanted to do this topic that was very modern, I mean, Oklahoma and Carousel are both set in the 19th century. They're very consciously historic. One thing I, I was really struck by is that Rogers, was, who, was the, who wrote the music, was really happy when um, Michener, who, James Michener, who wrote the book that it's based on, 
said, oh, yeah, you know, by the way, this sort of region where this is all set, they don't really have an instrumental musical tradition. Like the most that they have is basically percussion. And Rogers was like, yes, I don't have to write steel guitars and marimbas. I don't have to write exotic music. I so, can basically write what I want. So he was against ukuleles. That was yeah. that was his uh, cultural no-no. So. But, but I think also it's actually one of the reasons why the songs have such staying power is that they're totally, none of the songs say we are in the South Pacific, apart from in lyrical content. The musical forms are actually, you know, it's a traditional orchestra. It's Rogers writing really what he wanted. So, you know, Nelly's songs, you know, Cockeyed Optimist and Wonderful Guy are, are very kind of American popular music, you know, that I mean quite deliberately he's sort of borrowing those those forms. Um, yeah, it just it doesn't necessarily say you're in the South Seas. And I think that that had really then helped all of the numbers achieve a life out of outside the show. So, Cara, I'm interested if you could set the stage, as it were, on who Rogers and Hammerstein were. What was the big whoop with them? So part of the reason why South Pacific is such a big hit is that they were really experienced creatives. So they had been kind of at the top of their game for years. So um, Oscar Hammerstein, the lyricist, um, Rogers was prior to his partnership with Hammerstein, most famous for his partnership with Lorenz Hart. So they wrote Pal Joey, which is another um, musical that was adapted to, for the film um, with Frank Sinatra. But Lorenz Hart wrote these very kind of funny, wry, kind of knowing lyrics. And Rogers had, had found this play, which is what Oklahoma became. And he really wanted to do it, but he knew that Lorenz Hart was not the guy to write like wholesome lyrics for a cowboy so he he suggested to Hammerstein that they work together and that was their first collaboration and yeah so by the time they get to the Pacific it's their fourth collaboration and they'd already had success with Oklahoma and Carousel their third show Allegro wasn't considered so successful um it was a bit too experimental but then they got to South Pacific and they decided that they were really excited about this this new contemporary material and so they they jumped at the chance to to try and write something kind of new and original I'm interested in uh, James Michener, the, you know, the original source material, because he was actually a, a war correspondent in the South Pacific, and then uh, and he wrote uh, what, what was it called? Tales. South so it's Pacific Tales, Tales of the South Pacific, and it, yeah. he he writes it right at the end of the war. So basically, he's he's writing about events kind of a couple of years beforehand. But so he got there kind of once it all happened. But he was talking to people who had who had been involved in these kind of major battles and just were talking about their experiences of South Pacific. And he said, you know, I basically wrote it for myself and for these men and women who had, you know, to capture for them what this whole experience had been like. He got 1% royalties, but Rogers and Hammerstein, who were very experienced and were very established producers as well as creatives, said to him, you know, you must have a stake in the show, you know. Have you got four and a half thousand dollars? And he was like, no. So they're like, well, look, we'll advance you the money. This will give oh, you a nice share play, of the Rogers show. Yeah. So they, they so they basically advanced him the money. And that stake um, made, yeah, it's, you know, made him, I assume it made him wealthy. I don't know in great detail, but it certainly enabled him to stop um, working as a, as a textbook editor and he, he became a full-time writer. So why was this, uh, the musical first and then the film version, Carl? Why? Because they were huge, weren't they? Absolutely huge on Broadway and an enormous success as a film. What was it about the South Pacific vibe that meant something to so many different Americans? Well, it's one thing I think that's really important to remember when you think, so it's written in 48, it gets to the stage in 49. Absolutely everybody involved in that creative process and everyone who went to see it had a connection to the war. It's hard for us, obviously, you know, we're looking back, you know, many, many decades later, but for everyone, this was really, 
it was really current. But I think it's also interesting because, you know, you you also had a lot of that kind of wartime propaganda. You know, there was an awful lot of these very kind of hyper-patriotic you know, hyper movies, war movies. And I think, to be honest, people are slightly tired of it. And I think I think the fact that it had this quite kind of, you know, honest treatment of, you know, the fact that that the war was messy and that people's experiences one thing that always strikes me is that it's like a war movie for someone who's never seen a war movie so like we've got all these military characters and like no war actually happens until right near the end <laughs> yeah suddenly they throw it throw it all in at the end <laughs> and and actually i mean you know i think if you were being a bit mean you can argue that some of that that sort of structure and plotting isn't isn't totally successful but you know it's really about boredom it's about yes. you know what what happens when nothing happens you know and i think i think that, that 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 kind of new treatment of the subject i think struck a chord for people and also the thing that that is really important is it's really a show about the personal it's really a, about hmm. you know personal relationships romance you know connection finding your place in the world um and i think yeah i think that really resonated with audiences and as it has continued to i think particularly you know the you know the songs have have, have achieved a kind of longevity. Um, I think uh, one of the most interesting things looking at the film now because I watched it all last night and I have to say it's I had mixed feelings about it because I mean of course the the hit songs are magnificent they're just so transcendental and the um, politics are pretty progressive. And it is an honest look at war, but also looking at it now, it is a little creaky in terms of its um, kind of stereotyping of like Nellie's always bursting into tears about every, about nothing. She's like <laughs> like all quavery voiced about everything. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, lady, you're a nurse in a theater of war. Like yeah. why, why is she so tremulous at the drop of a hanky? Um, but it, one thing that was really impressive is that they have not one but two different uh, romance stories where it's uh, a white person having, well, in the case of Cable, he falls in love with a Tonkinese woman. And then in the case of Nellie, she has a has to really struggle with her racism because she falls in love with the older French guy. And it turns out that he has two Polynesian kids from a, a former relationship. And I guess both of those things would have been incendiary. It's actually quite interesting that the, the story from Michener's short story collection, because Tales of the South Pacific is, is, is that, this central story, the faux dollar story, is really about Cable and Liat. And actually she has so much, I mean... <laughs> It's not fantastic, which has a lot more characterization in the story. She has none in the film. It's really, and, I mean, and I and think. And by that, the way, she looks like she's about 14, so that's a little troubling. Yes. Um, and that is really, I think, if you're going to call the, you know, the piece out now, I think it's the treatment of Liat and Bloody Mary. That's is her that, Bloody Mary is, is the mother. Is the mother, who's, mother. Who's this, you know, and she's one of the most memorable parts of the, of the, the show. I mean, she's this very kind of larger than life character. And, you know, from particularly, I think, from our kind of vantage point you know these mm. women are given almost no characterization Liat is literally almost given nothing to say Lieutenant Cable's introduced to her he kind of looks you know smolderingly at her and then goes over and kisses her I'm mean, a little bit I know talk it, about your like really grab him by the mm, yeah Trump she does, style I think she does at least he says are you scared and I think she says no and so I was like well okay that's uh, just about making me feel this is consensual but yeah. this is a bit troubling I like that as it like that's a really good come online Tom are you scared and then just <laughs> and then just lunge in brace yourself Bridget 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 that is all pretty w- troubling, and I think also the fact that Nelly, as a you know, she's a professional woman, she's a nurse. Yes, you don't actually see her do any nursing until about three quarters of the way into the into the film. Yeah. you know, and yeah, I like your point that she's she's constantly getting emotional. But then the other thing about her being a nurse in the theatre of war, the bit that makes me laugh is you know she's. Um, Emile says that he had to free fr- France because he he killed somebody, and she's a bit like, yeah, okay, fine, murderer. <laughs> A bossy, abusive murderer. So there's, some, there's yeah. some strange, there's definitely some strange strands uh, going on. But then Rogers and Hammerstein, obviously, the, you know, the, the doyens of musical, they have written strong female parts in other musicals they do. They do The King and I, obviously Sound of Music. So is that just because those have come later in their career or are they using the source material in a different way? They actually, and even their earlier work too, I mean... Um, Carousel and um, Oklahoma also have quite sort of feisty women. Um, but I mean, this is mid-century America. Of course, there's going to be gender kind of problems. And, you know, The King and I, Sound of Music, South Pacific, it's, it's a lot about the woman having to join the man's world. You know, it's about kind of being absorbed into into his life. You know, Nellie kind of goes into this ready-made family. I mean, she obviously manages to accept these biracial children, which is like a big deal in 1949. Yeah, well, good you know. for you. <laughs> um, I mean, What? We are probably more now as modern viewers, I think you notice the fact that Paul Liat has like nothing to do. And, you know, whereas I think for contemporary audiences then in the 40s, you know, the fact that, that she could marry a, you know, a foreigner and, you know, and accept his, his interracial children, the fact that Cable could even remotely entertain the idea of marrying this Tonkinese woman and taking her back to Philadelphia. I always think No, it's- but, you know, he doesn't actually... He, he contemplates marrying her, but then he, his wiggle room is to say, you know what, maybe I won't go back to Philadelphia because there'll be too much chatter in the neighbourhood, so I'll just stay here Yeah, with my silent Tonkinese bride. <laughs> Child bride. <laughs> Child bride. Many, many years of happiness with this, you know, her extremely youthful loins. So these tunes, Katie, right, these are bangers, aren't they? These, 100%. These have stood the test of time. Like, you like musicals, Katie, don't you? And your I childhood do. had quite a lot of musicals yes. in them. Was this a big one for you? Uh, the only memory I have, I mean, well, the first film I ever saw in a theatre was The Sound of Music. So I was five years old and it was terrifying because there was lots of hiding from Nazis. I just remember that. It was scary. <laughs> big, scary movie as far as I was concerned. Uh, South Pacific, I remember the album cover from, I guess it would have been from the film because I had blonde Mitzi Gaynor, is mm. that her name? Yeah. Who played Nellie. So that was on the cover. Um, but I never listened to it. I, I don't know. It wasn't, I guess at the time I wasn't, as a child, attracted to shaved men's chests. <laughs> but I, but you, I mean, of course, you. it's you and Captain Sensible all the way, Tom. That's, that's your only uh, into it. It is. And then I watched... Um... The clips that we talked about, and I watched, uh, you know, We Ain't Got Dames. and There is nothing like a dame. There is nothing like a dame. And I watched the people sing about that, and I thought, yeah, that probably is accurate to you because you're not interested in dames. <laughs> yeah. this, is the, you know, this is just not something you're interested in. It's, like, uh, it's like me singing, you know, there's, there's nothing about, I don't know, um, knitting. So it's you're, not something of, that's entered my experience. Yeah, you, you are questioning those gentlemen and their midriff-bearing tops, their interest in dames. Is that what you're saying? It's just that juxtaposition because um, at that time, I'm guessing, Cara, a lot of the leading men in Hollywood were in the closet, whether it's Rock Hudson and people like that. You couldn't outwardly be gay, yet you've got a song that, to, to our eyes, 
as we said, Katie, is the epitome of everything that's camp. Well, it's very true. And, and you know, particularly the theatre world had, had long been a reasonably safe space for, for gay creatives, you know, particularly men. That had been true for, for years and years. And, and you know, the, but the 1950s was a really... It's one of the reasons I, I find the period so interesting was that on the one hand, you had this sort of burgeoning kind of gay rights movement. Um, but at the same time, you know, the anti-communists kind of hysteria that was bubbling through... American public life, one of the things that the anti-communists were really obsessed about was, was homosexuals. Because if you were homosexual, you could be blackmailed because it was so dreadful to be homosexual. What if somebody found out your sexuality and could then use that against you? And then the idea was that, you know, you would then be forced to turn into a spy for the Russians and you would, you know, in your government job, you'd then have to give them secrets, you know, to, to, to keep. So this is often called the lavender scare because it was this worry that, you know, that the like the State Department or the military were awash with these closeted gay men and that, you know, that they they could be turned and so there's there was a lot of hysteria and it was you know people were fired for their for their sexuality and so it's yeah it's it's very it's very interesting then from you know many many years later and you know post the gay liberation movement and stonewall and you know to then to then think that actually you know probably a number of these these guys might well have been gay, but they were doing their damnedest to, to look super straight. I think, um, I think <laughs> it I just think doesn't necessarily always work. The joy of so many of these musicals is that they can be read in so many different ways. So you could, I'm thinking of my ex-father-in-law who one time memorably pronounced South Pacific as the masculine musical. <laughs> Because he felt that musicals were inherently a little, you know, uh, fruity tooty, and he felt like this one, you knew where you were. But of course, you know, through a different set of eyes, you can see it as unutterably, you know, kitsch and uh, self I mean, self-referential. Yeah, you know, there's nothing like a coconut bra to uh, yeah <laughs> to, to suggest a kind of gender bending, which 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 actually, you know, as you say, the film actually does put out there. It's right there in in you know front and centre it's just how you, you know, I think how you choose to read it and, and so many kind of cultural products of this era are kind of awash with those sort of double readings Right it's cup of tea time we'll do a few ads we'll be back with you in a couple of moments The Fertility Podcast is for you to learn more about how best to optimise your fertility to ideally get pregnant naturally We'll be teaching you everything from tracking your cycle to what lifestyle changes you can make However if you're needing to have fertility treatment we'll be guiding you through what's involved whether you're in a couple or going solo, we've got your back. I'm Natalie Silverman, mum of one after successful IVF, which is why I launched this podcast. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. Together, we're with you every step of the way. So go and search the Fertility Podcast in all your usual podcast places. <laughs> Getting back to this whole idea of um, the racism and, and the progressive nature of South Pacific, there's actually a song in the musical that addresses it. You've got to be carefully taught. Can you talk to us yeah, about that? Yeah, so, so this comes, um, it's it's a kind of moment of revelation song sort of in Act Two. So it's Lieutenant Cable, the you know, the good-looking All-American chap who's who's in love with Liat and he he actually witnesses this discussion between Nellie and Emil where Nellie says basically I can't be with you it's not your kids it's not their fault it's you know I can't and he said but is it my wife he said yeah, I just can't explain it it's it's I can't give you a reason you know this is just something born in me and he says I can't believe it's born in you and she kind of runs off and he sort of turns to Cable to kind of to, you know asking him what, what's going on and Cable breaks into this this song called you've got to be carefully taught which is about how racism 
is not is not born in you. It is something that that is that is taught, and it's about your family, and it's about the, the, these values being instilled in you. And it was it was one of the most sort of commented on parts of the show. It was they found it like too on the nose, yeah, basically, and and, and too sort of preachy. And yet, in they couldn't tour with the show in certain southern states. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I and mean, so the Rogers and Hammerstein were liberal and anti-racist and they discovered that one of the venues they'd been booked into in Delaware was a segregated theater and they refused they said we won't you know we're not going to let you put the show on in this space unless the management agrees that it can be an integrated uh, auditorium and so that that uh, happened and then in 53 I think they they toured to Atlanta in Georgia and local legislators kind of called the show out on the floor of the state house and said you know this is communist propaganda you know and it just seems so odd to us but it was the idea of espousing racial equality was seen as un-american and seen as communist katie also feels to me like in our lifetimes hollywood has been so culturally dominant hasn't it you know Mm. we, we both grew up watching hollywood films and blockbusters and things like that but it's this idea that So Hollywood have done a film version of this stage play that at that point, Cara, it's what's happening on Broadway, which is having this massive effect that you've talked about, you know, this cultural effect on the southern states. It all starts on Broadway rather than across on the West Coast. You know, I see it. It's funny. I know. Sorry, I'm going to jump in because you addressed it to Cara, but I'm thinking it's almost like Hamilton nowadays because that was a total Broadway sensation. And um, that also, I mean, unlike South Pacific, it it went way back into the past, whereas I guess the frisson of South Pacific was it was in recent memory. But also it was looking at things um, that are still touchy today as uh, race relations continue to be. Very much so. And and of course, the, you know, the East Coast was the heart of American cultural production. You know, this was this was where everything emanated. And, you know, New York was a massive focal point during the war as well, particularly for troops, because the biggest embarkation port was New York. So, you know, if you think about this, you know, all those Americans, all those GIs who went to Europe or went to Africa, they all had to go by boat. You know, ah. this was this was you know, there was not mass air travel at this point. You know, going to see a, a show was a was, you know, was often a big part of that for a lot of people. Who, you know, you came from all over the place, you know, you came from. Hicksville nowhere, you yeah. know, but the excitement of getting to go to Broadway, you know, it did. It, ha- it had a lot of cultural resonance. And that would be a, an, an another reason why in South Pacific, in the middle of the plot, they're putting on a show and all of these men, all these manly men are quite happily throwing themselves into like, let's perform, let's put on a show. Because <laughs> I guess that, you know, that would have been the pop culture at the time. Was it, it would. You sing, you dance, you know, and you do it on a, on a stage. Hey, Katie, with, with this podcast, we find ourselves asking why Billy Joel has chosen a particular lyric. But this is all making sense to me because it sounds like not only was South Pacific huge, but he's a kid growing up in yeah. New York and he's a kid growing up within reach of Broadway. So something that's huge on Broadway is going to seep into his life. The album, which was huge, is probably being played in the Joel family home, isn't it? Oh, 100%. Like he would have been, and also as a musical kid, you know that he would have had an ear cocked out for all of those great tunes in there, Some Enchanted Evening and Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair and there's also like a dame. Like you know that he would have been warbling that in his little uh, pre-broken uh, voice. Uh, and you're totally right. Child Soprano. These really were in people's homes. I mean, you know, the, the cast album, the stage show cast album sold a million copies, but the sheet music sold two million. 
So, you know, this was... Oh, yeah, he'd be playing it on his little piano. He would be, wouldn't he? Yeah. You know, so this is an era when, you know, Auntie, you know, Flo might come over and you might all go, oh, let's, Leo, let's all do happy talk, you know, and, 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 and you know, crack it out on the piano. So I think it, it was in people's lives and it did, you know, it, re- it did have such longevity. There were so many different recordings of the different songs, of different artists doing them, you know, different kind of lounge singers or big bands. So I think it would have been quite hard to avoid it and also I suspect as a kid you know the the Korean War happens right in the early 50s and I imagine that you know it could all have been slightly tied up as a child in all these sort of you know this kind of images of kind of tropical Asian conflict but also this you know say the music and the you know I think it I think it would have had quite a kind of powerful and lasting influence particularly with with the run I guess if it comes on Broadway in 1949 Katie and then it's made into a film 10 years later like that's a decent cultural span, isn't it? And there's there's one single fact that blew my mind when I was looking, looking into this. Right, so the uh, the soundtrack from the film has spent more weeks at number one in the UK album charts than any other album. I had no idea. That's 115 weeks. I mean, I would have said uh, thriller. Sound, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, thriller. I was going to say sound of music, but yeah, thriller. So it was number one for the whole of 1959. Not an, another album didn't get to number one. Oh. And you think about That's that, amazing. you think about all those people buying that, you know, how many yeah. people are talking to their friends or their family about, oh, you know, I finally got my hands on a copy. Or, well, you it's know. the cultural conversation. It's like something before social media, something that everybody could hook into. And even if you hadn't seen the, the play, you could buy the album and you knew the narrative. So you sort of felt like you had seen it. And, and that's one thing that's really interesting about, about musicals, I think, at this point, is that they are like a concept album, you know, because it does tell a story. You know, you can particularly, um, you know, the LP format, one of the first most successful albums on the LP format is South Pacific. So, you know, you could put it on and you can just sort of relax into this, you know, into this story. Yeah, you um, could it could just sort of show the 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 picture on the the windmills of your mind, so to speak. I do remember as a kid looking at my mom's uh, South Pacific album cover and it was from the film because it had Mitzi Gaynor who played Nelly and then it had uh what was his name Ro- Russ who was the guy who played um the He's Rosano Brazi. R- Rosano Brazi. Anyway, I just remember saying, there's that blonde, young blonde lady and that old gray-haired guy. Anyway, I watched the film last night and I was like, I really, the only man I was interested in was the older man and uh, the other like spindly, weird, naked, shaved guys. <laughs> uh, they were a little bit like newborn hamsters. They didn't quite <laughs> tickle my pickle. But um, I was quite drawn to this older fellow and I understand that um, that was a little bit of an innovation in musicals to have like an older sex symbol Indeed, and the the guy who who played it on Broadway, um, Ezio Pinza, who they were going to cast in the film, but unfortunately he he died. Um, I quite liked um, James Michener, who wrote the book Tales of South Pacific. He he had a, a nice quip, which was you know about kind of he said you know I I went to I went to bed and woke up to find Ezio Pinza famous, you know. So he he you know it wasn't actually him who got the fame. It was it was Pinza who was this opera star who'd sort of moved over into into musicals, who yeah became this you know this sex symbol, and he he was thrilled as you'd imagine and yeah. he basically got out of the show as soon as he could and was like I'm going to Hollywood it, it, but it's another thing that I thought was interesting which I hadn't ever really thought about is actually how weirdly asexual their their attraction is so you know you think she's a gold digger and he's like after this nubile woman you know yes. this young woman climbing up my hill as the lyric I goes. saw I heard oh that what sort of euphemism is that I know <laughs> it always makes me laugh but the, you know the, the, there is something kind of 
you know, it is about this sort of romantic love. And that is quite, that's how they sort of stage that relationship. It's just odd because, but that it really works. And I think the music is a big thing to do with it. I mean, mm. the, the male lead, the, you know, the, um, the Emile character, mm. Some Enchanted Evening is the big number, you know, and it's the one that everybody knows. Um, but he also has this wonderful song near the end, which is when he's sort of deciding that he's going to do this really heroic act, which is called This Nearly Was Mine. It's about the same time that Cable does You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, and then you get this, like, sucker punch with This Nearly Was Mine, and it's such a beautiful song, and it really is about longing and loss, and, you know, and it's it's really quite moving. And so, yeah, then you get this slightly kind of ham-fisted war bit where they go off to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> to spy it's a, on the Japanese. It's a bit, it's a kind of token, isn't it? It's it like, is. It's like, like, we have to have, we set it up that we're in battle. We have to have a battle. Let's go. <laughs> and and then my, my uh, the other sort of slightly silly favourite is then that very sadly plot spoiler, Cable gets killed in this in this mission, but he dies off screen. So it's like a Greek tragedy. So you kind of, you kind of cut back to Emil radio being saying, I, I have bad news. Lieutenant <laughs> Cable died this morning. And you pan slightly to see him like just looking handsome and shirtless in a grave, being kind of having like Fronds thrown at him by some, you know, some kind of totally characterless natives. It's just, it's it weird. is really, yeah. That that part totally cracked me up, Car. They carefully take. There's three palm fronds. One goes in the middle. One goes at like his throat, and then the final one covering his face. Oh. And there we go. So yeah, that's. I mean, there are these slightly silly. And I mean, and- it, they're bearing him like he's a salad bar. <laughs> Someone's going to sprinkle some nuts on top, you know. Hey, it's such a bright film as well, isn't it? When you watch it, does that does that make sense to you too? Like oh, the colourful. the colours, yeah. they're almost searing your eyeballs. And I, and I know they're trying to say, look, you know, in a post-war world, this is the colourful South Pacific, but it is so bright well, to modern and, eyes. And and also on top of that, Tom, when they get to the actual songs, they really saturate the the colour. So one number will be all yellow or. Uh, Bally High is that ter- yeah. that turns pinky red? I'm not sure if that was like my um, my screen setting. No, you you, you do st- you do start to wonder because yeah. they're, they're so they're so ridiculous and you know that yeah. that that trouble when you're watching stuff like maybe you recorded it off the TV and you're like did it did it just all go a bit weird? Yeah, I did keep but, fiddling with my setting, but no, it really is. This was this creative choice that that Joshua Logan, the director, made with the film to to use these kind of colourful filters. Slash the other bit that makes me laugh is they also did this to try and cover the fact that the weather was not kind to them during <laughs> filming. Oh. So when they go to Bally High, which is obviously meant to be this big moment of like excitement and exoticism, when you actually pay attention, it's clearly about to be a hurricane. Like the weather is <laughs> terrible. Like it's cloudy, like all the trees are like whipping around, but they're trying to go like, oh, look, it's so sunny. And so basically they stick a yellow filter over it. But it, it, I think it does strike you as a bit odd when you watch it now, because it's it's for something that's trying to sort of strive towards realism, it's incredibly theatrical and kind of anti-realistic, which I think is possibly what makes you think, I'm sorry, what are they doing? So there you go, Katie, do not adjust your set. It is not your TV. Mm. It's South Pacific. Yeah, it's just, it's Chinatown, Jake. So where are we putting, out of all the great musicals that Rodgers and Hammerstein do, like, and this is a bit of a male listy question, but this is the way that my brain works, where are we putting South Pacific up against the likes of Sound of Music, King and I, Oklahoma, Carousel, top three? I think it's music really stands the test of time. I don't necessarily think that the piece, I mean, when you take it sort of liberal credentials, that's sort of quite exciting, the fact it was trying to do this kind of anti-racist statement. Um, but I don't, you know, it wouldn't be my first choice. If someone offered me the opportunity to go and see any of those staged, um, 
it, it probably wouldn't be wouldn't be my top. I have a big soft spot for Oklahoma. I might have seen the Trevor Nunn national production starring oh Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. I saw that too. I might have seen it. I might have seen it more than a few times. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that was my first exposure to Hugh. To Hugh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I, was I, ready I, I for and him. I saw it on the last night in the West End when Howard Keel was also in the audience, and I was yeah, no. so just fangirling all over the place with my mom. It's amazing. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I think I think some of the other shows kind of as as a package. I mean, The Sound of Music obviously is like the the blockbuster musical of the following decade. You know that as you I think you said you know that was the one that was really cemented in your mind, Katie, yes. as a as a kid. You know the yeah. you know hiding from the Nazis. You know I also obviously had a very musical centered upbringing. You know how much I wanted to be Liesel. You know being serenaded by a Nazi in, yeah, in, in every, a gazebo, which every, I realised as I look back was possibly not entirely healthy. Sure, every young girl's dream. <laughs> I have to say that question. It is a very male question, Tom. You know to put things uh, to rank things. I know. Sorry. It does remind me, if I may, do a little sidebar to a former boyfriend of mine who, the first time I went over to his house, looked at a little bulletin board he had in his kitchen, and he uh, thumbtacked to the bulletin board pictures of his girlfriend friends consecutively from, I don't know, like age 13 onward. And there were about seven of them thumbtacked in a row in a line. And then I said, you'd better not thumbtack a picture. I don't want to be at the end of this thumbtack list. Forget it. Oh, and also next to it were motorcycles that he'd had in the same era. So um, anyways, oh that's, that's like, but that's like the origins of Facebook, isn't it? It's like this deeply weird world where like you have to categorize and judge everybody. I, you know, I think that's just how men's brains work. It's just, it, it keeps things very simple for them. But what I would say to you, while that is uh, a, a useful metric, I don't think it tells the whole story to say, you know, how it, this, South Pacific expert, you know, where does she rate it? Because you also have to take into consideration the culture and the context that it was within. And I think out of all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, it seems like that's the one that had the most, you know, bombastic impact. It did. Uh, culturally it, was, it, it really made a, a massive impact in its day. And I think the fact that South Pacific ran on one screen at the Dominion Theatre in, in the West End in London for four and a half years. It was the only thing they wow. showed. Amazing. For four and a half years. And basically it made so much money at that one venue that it covered the cost of the film. Like it, the, the entire production costs were basically made back from that one screen. Wow. Incredible. You know, and so it, so it, it, really, it really spoke to people kind of in the, in the 1950s. So I think, Katie, that we always ask ourselves, at the end of this show, has Billy Joel done the right thing in putting this particular cultural item in his masterpiece? Um, Cara has convinced me beyond all reasonable doubt that South Pacific deserves to be in We Didn't Start the Fire. I believe you are correct, and Cara has made a very compelling case. Well, thank you so much. It's been so such a lovely opportunity to chat about it with you. Um, it is it's beautiful and I, I recommend definitely recommend the, the songs to anyone who doesn't know it it's uh, yeah you'll be singing them around your kitchen it feels a bit weird to me Katie that none of us have sung any of the songs on this but equally I'm not going to be the first one happy to break happy talky talky happy talk talk, talk about, about things we like to do <laughs> you've, you've got, got to have a dream if you don't have a dream how you gonna have a dream come true Oh, we certainly put the hat on that little donkey. That is all for this week, but you know what to do. You can subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast, and tell your friends, get them in the cult of We Didn't Start the Fire.
Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.